So I was thinking, how do you become different but better? That's exactly what I explore with my guest, Cass Bailey, CEO and founder of Slice Communications, a PR and social media agency operating out of Philadelphia. We talk about the early changes in Slice that threw Cass into the CEO role, how she learned leadership skills from being an umpire, and projects she's helped push along to help underserved communities in Philadelphia and the state of PA. We end by discussing how Cass lives her best life. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, hi Cass. How's it going? Good. How about you? How's your family? How's everybody doing? Uh, everyone's doing well. Uh, everyone's doing well. Everyone's safe. Everyone's healthy. Uh, so that's really all we can ask for <laughs> with everything going on this year. It's It's been a wild ride, and I'm sure you've experienced it with your family and, and your job, but uh yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely been an adventure. How's, how's your family? Also safe and healthy. The team at Slice is safe and healthy. My friends and my friends seem to be okay, though I haven't physically seen them in a very long time. Upsetting, but, but we're, we're very fortunate. It's definitely been a challenge. Again, in the midst of all this, thank you for coming and, and deciding to join on this podcast and, and you know, share some knowledge for people out there. So, you know, before we get fully into the, everything, for those who are listening and might not know who you are, can you tell your story and, and kind of the story of Slice Communications as being CEO there? Yeah, so I've been the CEO of Slice Communications since 2014, but the agency was founded by myself and a partner in 2008. We, terrible time to start a business. And I give all the kudos in the world to people who are starting their businesses right now, because I know what it's like to to start one in a challenging economic situation. That said, if you can do that and you can survive that, you can survive a lot. And so I actually applaud and encourage people to start businesses right now. So we started the business in 2008, February. We did not realize how terrible it was going to be in September. Then the whole world collapsed economically. The good news is we were in a, we were in a good position because it was just myself and my partner working out of our homes. We were able to bootstrap. We were able to be an affordable choice. We were able to really go after businesses who maybe couldn't spend a whole lot of marketing on marketing at that time. And so the business actually took advantage in a way of that economic hardship and situation. We started to really grow the business in 2010 and grew it pretty quickly through 2012. In 2012, sold it, a majority of it, to a strategic buyer. Uh, That acquisition did not work out for a lot of reasons, and I bought the company back uh, in 2014. Okay. Just uh, for those out there listening, let's take a step a little bit further back. Uh, You know, Slice Communications, uh, you guys are a PR agency, correct? And you guys do a lot with social media as well, uh, as I'm aware, at least, sponsoring events like Social Media Week and here in Philly. and, And so... You know, that's really interesting that kind of that time frame, especially like 2008, 2009, when you see social media being a, a real big player in the business world as well. So I'm curious as to, uh, you spoke about the fact that you sold the company and then you had to, you know, kind of step in and say, okay, actually it's going to a place where I don't necessarily think it's, it's positive for everyone involved. You know what, let me buy it back and take control of that. And I'm, I'm really curious. So I'd love to hear more about that experience. 
And selling a business and buying it back in the services industry actually is more common than you would imagine. I've talked to many people who have been in my similar situation, selling their services business and buying it back. When we sold this business, we sold a majority share of it, 51%. And my partner and I each maintained a percentage of the business and we continued to work in the business. We were salaried for the first time ever. There was an additional uh, compensation for business growth, and that's how our deal was structured. We actually moved the company into the acquiring partner's office space and operated within the context of their business, but still under a separate brand and under a separate business entity. Working in the business and seeing how it was being run, and I was really responsible at that time for client service, for delivering to clients, for doing strategy, for overseeing our execution team. Um, And my partner was involved much more in business development and sales and marketing for the agency. But a lot of the core function of functions of the business, including finance, HR, operations, IT, had been taken over by the, the acquiring partner. And we realized pretty early on that we necessarily weren't getting the attention that our business needed. We also realized pretty on that there was a pretty big cultural difference in terms of how they operated culturally as an organization and how we operated culturally as an organization. And those things never really meshed. We also saw some challenges in expectations. So we had certain expectations going into the business of what we thought we would get. They had certain expectations. And the structures and the agreements between the two businesses were never really put in place such that either sets of expectations could be achieved. Um, So I think that there were some things that I should have asked about that I should have done due diligence into them as an acquiring partner that I just didn't do. Being somebody who at the time was young-ish and excited to have my business bought by somebody else and excited by the potential of growing the business through that strategic partnership that I just overlooked. Questions I didn't ask, hard conversations I didn't have. And as a result, about 11 months, 10, 11 months into the acquisition period, we all realized that it wasn't working. My founding partner realized it wasn't working. The acquiring partner realized, I realized, we all realized it wasn't working. Um, She decided that she wanted out and I was going to take over her equity. And then the acquiring partner decided it wasn't a great fit for them moving forward either. So I looked at the employees and I looked at the business and I said, well, what am I going to do? I decided to go for a walk because I find that a lot of times when you face really challenging situations or hard decisions that walking is is the source of the solution, clearing your mind. And while I was on that walk, I got a phone call from a prospective client we had been pitching. And that call was that we had closed the deal. Primarily, like I worked on that deal. I led that deal. I'd been pursuing that deal and getting that sign from the universe that you can do this, that the agency will be okay, that people want to hire you. They want to work with you was exactly the sign that I needed to say, okay, I'm going to take on this business. I'm going to take hundred percent of this business and I'm going to move it forward. Wow. That's so cool. When you know people talk about manifesting and, and kind of like saying they're like, all right, you know, I want to see something that, that shows me I can do this. And, you know, you're thinking like, Hey, I can do this. And then all of a sudden, boom, you go for a walk and then you get the deal. That's really cool. And I, I think in the context of kind of three major parties, you know, b- between your founding partner and also the acquiring company to, to kind of just you. So for me, just walk me through kind of that process, or at least that time period right after that. I'm sure there was a lot of challenges. I'm sure there's a lot of successes, but I would love to hear, you know, how did you kind of weather those storms and how did you kind of rally the team after that reacquisition, uh, if you will? 
the transaction itself was very complicated and very challenging because the attorneys and advisors that I'd used to sell the business were conflicted out, out of helping me buy it back. Yeah, because they had represented both myself and my former partner in the acquisition to sell, they could not be involved in me then buying her shares back. So that became very complicated. So I had to very quickly find a new attorney, new advisors who were willing to help me with this. And the way the transaction happened was the acquiring partner bought her shares. So they had them all. And then I bought the shares from them. Okay. So I, it didn't end up being triangulated in a way. It was a little cleaner than that. And, and um, that helped expedite the whole process. As I mentioned, we were in their office. And so this deal was completed on February 5th. And I had until February 28th to move the business. Wow. And that was very stressful, trying to find a place, um, have the cash to put down on a deposit on a new place. And so we found a building. We found an office space, but the office space was unfinished. And so what we did was move into a temporary office while our office was being built out. We were there for a couple of months and I, we had to buy furniture. We had to buy tables and chairs. Our whole team sat one day and put our desks together. We had to put chairs together. I had to find a new banking relationship, had to find a new line of credit, had to find new service providers, had to get our own employee benefits, our own 401k. And so that was very stressful at the time. I'm fortunate that I have been networking in the Philadelphia area since I was about 19, professionally, through internships and and this is something that I would say is what I recommend to others that if try to start networking as early as you possibly can, if you're in an internship and that internship sponsors events or trade shows, or even cocktail events or panels or webinars, go, just go to them, raise your hand and say, I'd really like to go to that because those relationships that I started making at 19, 20, 21 are relationships that I still have today. And so when I bought the business back and I looked around and I said, well, somebody please help me. The good news is that there are a lot of people who said, yes, Cass, we will help you. We will help you get healthcare. We will help you get a banking relationship. We will help you get an office and desks and all of those things. And that was incredibly important. We also retained our entire, I, I retained the entire team at the time. Everybody had been working with us. And while, when I bought the business back, it was losing money every month. The thing of which I am the most proud is that nobody on our team missed a paycheck. Nobody. It took a lot of hustle, a lot of ingenuity, a lot of investing in the business to be able to do that, but nobody missed a paycheck. And so that enabled them to continue to focus on servicing the clients. And then finally, we kept our clients, communicating with them that, you know, the business was going to be central again. It was, I was really going to be focusing all of my time and attention on it, that I was dedicated to the success of it. And just knowing that those relationships were going to continue gave me the confidence to be able to support the business. There's one last thing that I have to share. So as I mentioned, my job had really been within the business had really been focused on client delivery, on PR, on social media, on strategy. And I did not do a whole lot in terms of sales and marketing. And so I had suddenly had to start selling because when it's your business, you, ha you have to at least initially be the primary sales and business development person. So I would go out and, you know, pitch clients and write proposals and all of these things. And my close ratio was terrible. And that's the thing you have to start like managing and monitoring your close ratio. How many proposals are you putting out versus how many uh, accounts are you closing? It was awful. 
So I have a very good friend. Again, I met her when I was in my early 20s and she is a sales coach. Her name is Lisa Peskin. And I called Lisa and I'm like, Lisa, I can't close business. I can't sell. What do I do? And so Lisa said to me, explain your sales process to me. And I was like, well, I go and I show up and I give them a bunch of ideas and, you know, hoping that 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 will mean that somebody will want to work with me. And she said, Cass, you're doing something that we call show up and throw up. You're going into a meeting, you're dropping all of your M&Ms in the lobby, you're saying, here, take my ideas, take my insights, take my perspectives. Nobody's going to pay you when you're just giving them your ideas for free. And so she took these two parts, these two parts of my sales process, and she flipped them. And within a month, the close ratio had doubled. It was over 50%. It was very, very good. We were closing business. And as we were able to close business and get new clients, we were able to make sure the business was profitable again. It was making money. It was doing well. And it was because of her guidance, right? Going to this expert who really knew what she was doing. She made a small change in our sales process. She flipped two of the deliverables and it changed everything for the business. It changed everything for where we are today. Wow. I want to stay right there for a second. I think I think that's so important in terms of when you talk about sales and, and whatnot, and, and not just for... I don't know for you know PR, but but also for I, I think back to you know creatives, and and so I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, the people over at at Rec Philly, uh, for yeah. instance, or, or Will Tom's, um, yeah. you know. So so for instance, you know, he talks about as a creative looking at yourself not as necessarily just an artist who's just you know a single person who who's there, but really looking at yourself as a, a business. And so I think back to to that process of like, hey, like. Instead of like going in somewhere and like, like you said, giving all your ideas out for free, it's like really, no, like there's a process like, hey, like I'm going to show you the value that I bring. And then we can discuss after, you know, we, we put down terms and agreements. I have, uh, you know, a couple friends who are artists. And, and so for the longest, they kind of did something similar to that where they're like, hey, I'll do this, I'll do that yeah, I can do that for, for free or whatnot, or like, don't you know, worry about it. And then, you know, they turn around and they're like, well, why am I getting clients? Why am I not getting paid? And so I think that's really important to say, hey, articulate your value, but don't give it up and, and make sure you maintain that value in a sense. Real quick, a story that somebody shared with me recently, I went to a seminar about pricing. How do you price your services? How do you price, you know, what you have to offer? And the speaker was gave, told the story about Pablo Picasso. He was in a park painting, drawing, making art one day. And this woman walked up to him and she said, will you sketch me? And he said, yeah, sure, I'll sketch you. So he sketched her. And the sketch took about five minutes and it was a beautiful sketch. And at the end, she's like, oh my gosh, that sketch is so beautiful. Can I buy it from you? And he said, sure, it's a thousand francs, which is a lot of money. And she said, a thousand francs? How could you charge me a thousand francs for something that only took five minutes? And he said to her, no, madam, it took a lifetime. And I think a lot of times we underestimate the amount of thinking and energy and expertise and trial and error that goes into this thing that we are producing as creatives. And we think, well, it only took me 15 minutes. It only took me two hours. It only took me a day, but it didn't. It didn't. It took all of your knowledge and expertise and insights and perspectives and, and your hard lessons learned to be able to do that thing in 15 minutes or two hours or, or a day. And we need to realize the value that we bring. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I think that's that's such an inspiring story. I think I think there's a lot of people out there that are listening and, and can take you know something away from that in terms of leveraging and, and 
you know, their, their value and also commanding a space and, you know, going off of that, actually, I think for me at least, or, you know, you know, when I look at marketing and PR communications, those fields, they tend to be male dominated, or at least, at least at the top, you know, in terms of visibility. And, and so as someone who is a, a woman in, in this space, and not only that, but a CEO, you know, how are you able to A, leverage your value, but also B, command your space and, and say, this is how I do things, you know, respect me and, and also prove that you're probably better than most of the people out there. So, so I'd love to hear that perspective. I have been standing up to middle-aged white men since I was 12 years old. And when I was a kid, I had an opportunity to become an umpire. I love softball. I love baseball. I love those things. And so at around 12 years old, I became an umpire and I decided I really wanted to get into umpiring. So my dad took me to umpire school. I was the only kid there and also the only girl there, but I really liked it. And so over time, I actually earned my way into umpiring boys, little league boys. And I umpired Little League boys. And if you know much about Little League um, at all, uh, the parents can be awful. Yep. can be really, really terrible. And so I would call balls and strikes and there would be parents who would say, oh, um, you know, you need to get your eyes checked, blah, blah, blah. And on more than one occasion, they got aggressive. And in those situations, I actually I had to throw them out of the park. And to say, you got to go. And I was more than willing to do that because I was the umpire. I was the one in charge. I knew more than they what they knew. I went to umpire school. I studied this. I knew the rules inside and out. And so I had an authority that came from a place of knowledge, that came from a place of education, that came from a place of like knowing my training. And so even as a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old girl, like I knew that if I had more knowledge and more training, more expertise, therefore I had more authority. And so since then, I've been um, able to like leverage those skills that I had as a kid or even that approach, that attitude as, as, as a teenager to be able to put myself in positions in a lot of cases where I have authority and I have authority because of my training and my expertise and because I think about these topics more than the people that I'm talking to. I have more experience with these topics than the people that I'm talking to. And so starting this company, um, I was 26 when this company was founded and I was 31 when I bought it back. And one of the things I realized was that when I bought it back, I wanted to be the CEO. I wanted not just to be the CEO of this business, but I wanted to be like a recognized CEO of a scalable business. And so I decided to join an organization called EO, which is the entrepreneurs organization. And at the time um, in our Philadelphia chapter, there were four female members out of a hundred members of 4%, which is ridiculous. But I have surrounded myself with people who in a lot of cases, yes, are male, but more and more like increasingly female who are badass. We are also certified woman owned. So every year, not this year, but most years I get to go to these conferences with other women business owners who are also badass and learn from them and have conversations with them about business, about leadership, about what we need to do beyond just like being a woman in business. And so I think that it, it comes from that, that 12 year old girl. And I think that people who want to find themselves in a CEO position really need to think about where can you get authority? How can you express that authority from the time you're a kid to when you're in college to when you're you know, in your first job? How can you know the most and be the most prepared in the room? and have confidence because of your preparation, because of your training, because you've put in the time and the effort and because you've thought about these things more than anybody else. 
And the more you can leverage that, if you want to move into a CEO position, I, I think in my experience, like that's what gets you prepared to be the leader. That's, that's, that is really important. I agree with what you said as someone who is, is not necessarily a white, white woman in business. I will, can only give my own perspective and, and as a black male in business, you know, it's interesting because I have had to, you know, leverage my knowledge or at least show my expertise to say, no, no, I, I belong in this room. Yes. So I, I definitely agree with that. And I think also at the same time, it's, it's interesting that you, you speak about, you know, EO and, and the fact that you, you get to collaborate and meet up and, and share ideas with other women who are in similar positions in, in leading companies. Because I always think about, you know, I'm involved with the Chamber of Commerce and, you know, mm-hmm. Professionals Council. And, and I think about just the fact that, you know, certain events allow me to, to leverage my own experience to help, you know, someone else who, who, who might be a person of color or black and, and say like, no, like I'm going to help you know, pull that person along as well, or, or just make sure that, you know, I'm supporting that person. Cause I think that's how you grow as, you know, as a group, but also like yourself in, in terms of collaborating with other people and sharing that uh, knowledge. So yeah, there's a technique um, because there are still times that are incredibly frustrating. This just happened to me yesterday. I'm on a board and the board is mostly male and most much older than me. And I've been like, trying to advocate for this idea over and over again. And one of the, and just keep facing um, barriers. And one of the older male people suggested the exact same idea as I did yesterday. And everybody got on board with his idea. And I wanted to scream and jump up and down and say, what is happening? So um, a technique that actually was used by women in the Obama administration that I've read about is, um, I think they call it the echo technique where they intentionally listened for ideas from other women and people of color and other people who are often like not listened to. They listened for each other in the room and then they actively echoed each other. So for instance, if you and I were in a room together and we knew that like we both had uh, trouble potentially being not listened to or marginalized, I would specifically listen for your ideas. And I would specifically repeat them on your behalf. Say he had this really great idea and reiterate it, right? And show through the language, my demonstration of my support for your idea. And then you would do the same thing, knowing that we both face these challenges of being unheard or underheard. And women in the Obama administration used it as a very specific technique and strategy in order to increase their authority and credibility. And that's where I think like building relationships and networks in order to support each other and even identifying these sort of strategies and saying, we're going to do this thing together can also be really powerful for um, younger communities and, and people of color and women who face these challenges of not being heard in a business setting. I think that's powerful. That's, that's, I haven't heard of that, of that technique, but now I'm like, I can totally see, see myself using it and see how effective that really could be. Cause especially from a psychology background, just the fact that the availability heuristic, the more you you hear something, the more you you see it, you're like, oh, wait, yeah, that actually is a good idea. The more you're, you're receptive to it. So I, I, you know, I, I will definitely, I'm definitely taking something from this conversation, you know, moving on a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think talking about communities that are, are necessarily underserved or, you know, that need assistance, need help and support. You know, I think about Philadelphia. Obviously, uh, it's been a very interesting year, very, some might say troubling year for Philadelphia as a city in, in multiple ways. But going through kind of your background and, and whatnot, I was very impressed to see that you've done work 
uh, through several groups, not only in Philadelphia, but also in the greater Philadelphia community. But I would love to ask you about your experience working with 2SDB. <laughs> I'm going to get it wrong, so I apologize. It's a small and small, diverse business and community task force. Okay. Yes, it's a mouthful. Okay. Clearly yes. somebody in government named this task force, not a marketing yes. person, but it is doing very good and powerful work. I'd love to hear about just dealing with that that task force, but also just some of your other just volunteering and, and other experience, you know, supporting Philadelphia. You know, what is what impact has that had for the people that you're you're you know helping, but also has that impacted you in, in what ways? Because uh, you know, I, I'm sure it has in, in some way or, or another. The task force was actually put together by Governor Wolf's Department of Community and Economic Development. And the goal of the task force in the very beginning of COVID was to ensure that small and small diverse businesses continue to have opportunities, right? Continue to be able to do job creation, that jobs weren't lost in um, different neighborhoods and especially economically challenged neighborhoods. And so the task force got together. Uh, It's a group of business leaders, diverse business leaders, also business owners, nonprofit owners, and some people from the government, not not nonprofit owners, nonprofit leaders and people from the government. And the task force was charged with coming up with some new ideas. And so the first idea that that came out of the task force was a was it was this very very interesting collaboration so the way that it works is that there is a program manager who manages a disinfecting program going into government buildings entities schools prisons nursing homes stadiums etc high traffic areas transportation centers and being able to manage a program that does real true disinfect, real true disinfecting and sanitization. So there's the program manager. Then there's also this really interesting technology that's sustainable, environmentally friendly. It, it's a machine, it just uses salt and water and it creates a solution that is very, very effective in terms of disinfecting. It includes a validation partner, somebody who actually does testing and validates if an area is clean and whether it comes back as um, active or inactive. Then there is uh, then there there's part of the partnership, and this is the part that is so exciting to me, that actually employs diverse owned janitorial companies to wow. do the actual cleaning right, to administer the solution, to do the testing, to enter the data. And that's incredibly powerful because a lot of small and small diverse and women-owned janitorial companies are losing opportunities as, as businesses and others are closed. So to incorporate them into this program, to pair them with this amazing technology, to, to pair them with testing and program management um, is, is what's really powerful about, about the overall program, which is called Disinfect US, and it's a it's a project of the task force. So it's innovative brought together small businesses and diverse businesses and highly qualified program managers to do this big, important work. So it's benefiting the community in terms of safety and sanitization. It's benefiting these small women-owned and diverse janitorial companies. It's benefiting um, the locally owned Philadelphia-based companies that are doing the testing and analysis and also uses this incredibly sustainable technology, just salt and water to create a solution that is like a high quality disinfectant. And so the program um, is working in some places and we're now looking for other um, schools and nursing homes and prisons and other like facilities, departments of health, et 
cetera, who want to bring this truly innovative program and very effective program into their place. And so that's been incredibly rewarding because I get to see the pictures and videos of the people who are employed doing this work, these other small businesses. And the more we can get this program into places, the more small businesses, janitorial businesses, cleaning businesses can, can take advantage of this opportunity and do this work to keep people safe. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really cool in terms of, you know, just talking about partnerships and everything and, 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 and tying it all together where like, Hey, like, you know, there's an environmental aspect. There's, there's a community aspect. Uh, there's also an economic aspect where you're really hitting all of those different points in a way that creates, you know, a, a positive outcome for everybody. That's, that's, that's really inspiring. And, and thank you for sharing that. Philadelphia, you know, I, I love Philadelphia. And I think, you know, there's so many smart, talented people here that really can come together and, and help help so many different groups to, to really rise together as a city. And so hearing stories like that, that that's really inspiring. Switching gears just a little bit. So, you know, besides just kind of things you do for organizations, for your own organization, I'm very curious uh, about just you as a person in general. And, and so I would love to ask, you know, uh, this podcast is about living your best life. I personally think about best life it kind of goes up against the notion of a good life. And so I'm curious to hear from you. Do you think there is such a thing as a good life? I absolutely think there is a good, such a thing as a good life. I definitely do. I have to, so this perspective is going to maybe seem a little out of left field. I am, and I found myself the happiest I've been in my life in the past year. Wow. Yeah. And that was a surprise to me as well for a lot of reasons. So, and I've talked, I am a huge fan of mental behavioral health. Um, I have a therapist that I've worked with now for years who's tremendous. I do a lot of like self-help and improvement, like just trying to be the best person I can be. And in the past year, like, even though I know there has been tremendous suffering and I understand that and I empathize with that in like a very guttural, visceral way, for my life personally, I've been able to slow down in a way that's given me perspective, that's given me space for relationships, that's given me headspace in order to come up with new ideas and new perspectives and be really, really thoughtful about what I want from my life. As I mentioned to you, I um, have been networking since I was 19. And that usually is like, 10 to 15 events a week. And when you're doing that, you're just running and running and running and running. Like you are up at a breakfast meeting at 7 a.m. and you are out a networking event until 11 o'clock at night. And one day in March, that all just ended. And in a way, at first I was, I didn't know what to do with myself. How's my business going to grow? How am I going to get new clients? How am I going to maintain my relationships? Like, how am I going to do this? Because I only knew one way to do it. And, and the situation has forced me into thinking of new ways to develop those relationships and grow the business. And those have been great, but also I I'm not out till 11 o'clock at night. I'm not up at four 35 o'clock in the morning. I'm up at five 30. Cause that's when I do my best thinking, but I have space to like do my best thinking. And so I find myself in this really happy place because I have perspective. I have time, I have headspace, but I've also been able to focus on the relationships that are the most important to me my family relationships, my like the best friend relationships, 
I have a two and a half year old and I get to spend more time with her than I ever have. My partner, I get to spend more time with him than I ever could have imagined. And even my team at Slice, I'm more accessible to them than I've ever been. Even though I don't get to like see them, I'm more accessible to them. They can reach out to me anytime because I'm not in a networking event. I'm not sitting in a lunch, right? I'm not doing these things. That's been in a way like very freeing to take my time back and then to be thoughtful and intentional about what I want to do with my time. To be honest, I don't think that's necessarily such a, a left field answer. I, you know, again, like you said, I think there is for a lot of different families and a lot of different people, you know, there is a lot of, a lot of negative outcomes from all this, but at, at the very least, there has been a lot of space created where, where you can have that, you know, I think it's accessible. Um, that's not necessarily, you know, guaranteed for everyone for variety of different reasons. But, but I agree in that. Like for for instance, this I released this. I released this the the first season of this podcast, and so you know, it was just it was something that was on on my my docket. It was something like, hey, I might get around to it. And then finally, it was just like, I have all this time. I'll you know, I'm literally sitting here. I have nothing else to focus on but this. Let me get this done and let me get this out to people. I imagine you have great joy and fulfillment from it. Yes. Yes. And so for me personally, I'm like, I, I'm, you know, someone in the same boat, like this has been in some ways a really great year. And, and, you know, in other ways it's like, Oh, I didn't get to, to, you know, travel somewhere. Oh, I didn't get to experience, you know, being in person with my friends, but at the same time, it's, I've reconnected with friends in, from, from high school that I haven't talked to in years, some of them. And so it's like, it is what you kind of make of it in some regards. Um, that's not to say, that's not to, to diminish any of the suffering or pain for, for the, some of those families out there. But at the same time, it is, you know, it really can be what you make of it and, and what you try to get, get from it. And that, that said, uh, that's not to say that you have to get something from it. Because uh, I, I think I don't want people to turn it into to kind of like a, you have to grind or you have to hustle during this time either. So. No, and this, this isn't meant to be prescriptive, right? Like my experience is not going to be everybody's experience. But for me, like this, there have been good things that have helped me have a good life during this time. And I'm just very thankful and grateful for that because I'm concerned that if I had just kept running as I had been running, I don't know that I would have gotten to this place of happiness. And I do have like, real true happiness now I wake up in the morning and I feel for the most part like excited there are days when I wake up in the morning I'm like oh my god another shutdown or like what is this going to mean or oh I've just heard about this friend of mine on Facebook who's very sick with COVID and like that does not feel good but for the most part I, I have a level of peace and happiness that I haven't had throughout my life and I'm thankful for it yeah yeah that's uh, I totally uh, understand where you're coming from diving a little bit deeper into, you know, I, I'm always curious as, as to what people do on a, like a daily basis to, to really help them live a good life or live a happy life or live their best life. And so, you know, especially during this time, I'm curious, you know, Cass, like, what are you doing on a daily basis that's helping you kind of, you know, get through your day and, and really not just survive, but thrive? I love to cook. So that helps me 
because there's nothing like cooking I find to be like really in the moment and like focused on cutting that thing. So that's been great. I've gotten to spend a lot of time outside and that's also been very helpful hiking, being in the woods. Um, I've become members of things like Winchester, which is a beautiful building and garden and Longwood Gardens as well. So to be like part of, of that community that's still outside. My cousin is a member of Grounds for Sculpture. So we've gotten to go there. Um, and then I've taken like a number of road trips a couple of hours away for a weekend, which has been really wonderful seeing parts of the Hudson Valley and seeing parts of Maryland that I didn't think and like went out to Harper's Ferry. So this kind of local tourism has been really inspiring in some ways just to like be in space that I've known and is so accessible and so close but I haven't actually prioritized being in that space and and now I have so that's been helpful um I also get to talk with my team way more often than I ever did before. And so we've come, we've had these like really cool breakthroughs in terms of the work that we do and how we do it. I'm in the process of, so last year I um, launched a series of children's books. I, yeah, I wrote, a, so my little girl, two and a half, um, she has everything, right? She's fortunate. We are fortunate. She's privileged that, that I was thinking about like what to get her for Christmas last year. And she loves to read. So I wrote her a book called My Mom is a CEO. And that's what that was her, her Christmas gift. And it was really easy. And I got an illustrator. I don't draw. I got an illustrator. And then for my cousin's little girl, who's about a year older, I said, well, I'll write one called My Mom is an Executive Director, because my cousin is an executive director of a, of a nonprofit. And then I was like, well, for my nephew and nieces, I should write one. And so I wrote My Mom is a Lawyer. So I wrote one for her. And then for a friend of mine, Laura, her baby was born on the same day as my baby. I wrote, my mom is a chief marketing officer. And then my mom is a chief financial officer. My mom is a chief operating officer. So now there's a series of 14, I think 14 books for my mom as a doctor is there. But, but for moms who have a hard time like explaining to the little ones what they do every day. And it's really written for like kind of zero to five for very little kids. And so that has been fulfilling and rewarding being creative in that way. I've also gotten social media days you mentioned was an event that we started and we decided this year to roll it out as its own 501c3. So I found a nonprofit officially during this time and we're looking at making social media day and the digital communications community um, to, to serve it all year, all year long, not just on social media day because we think that there's a lot of service that needs to be done. And as part of that, we started a mentoring program for people in digital communications. And so that launched in August. Our team started a diversity advisory council recently that we've been working on. We launched it in, in November. So I found that being like creative, and by that I mean like creating new things, being additive to the world, solving problems that I've got time to think about, has also really helped me. And then also just having this um, sense of accomplishment. Saying we did that, we created that nonprofit. We wrote that line of books. We started this council. We created a mentoring program. That has helped maintain my focus, but also my confidence that like things, things are not completely out of my control. You know, talking to, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Sean Han, uh, who he's a member of the you know, Professional Council um, and, and uh, you know, very visible in the, the chamber in, in Philadelphia. Uh, you know, he, you know, released a book. Um, in fact, at time of recording, it just dropped like today. Um, wow, congratulations. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, so it was funny. I was uh, in a call with him earlier. He's just kind of subtle plug. Um, but, but yeah, in terms of, you know, he talks about that same feeling of like, yeah, I just had to get something done. I had to, I had to achieve something. I had to, to, you know, show myself kind of like it was possible. And, and he talks about the work that he does on that inspires mm-hmm. him and motivates him to do the work he does in his day job, you know, and vice versa. And they all, they, you know, it's very synergistic. So, so I, I completely understand where you're coming from. That's almost the, the same feeling I, I get from, from doing this and having these conversations and sharing them uh, with people out there in the world. You know, thank you for that. And, and thank you for, for going through that. You know, a couple more questions because I, I know you're a very busy person. I want to wrap this up. Um, I'm happy to, this is fun. Let's do this. <laughs> this is great. Let's awesome. just do this all day. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm game. So I, I don't know if your team would allow for me. They'd probably come in like an hour, an hour 30 and be like, hey, you know, we need her back. So come on, Cass. Come on. Not me. I mean, me, not you. Yeah, but, but yeah. So, you know, going off of that, you know, what's something that keeps you up at night? You know, it could be something as small as, I don't know, like, it, did I leave the fridge open before I went to bed or, um, you know, something existential about, you know, what am I going to achieve in my life? But I would love to hear from you, like, what keeps you up at night? So let me, let me put it this way. I never really slept much. Sleeping was not really an important thing for me until I had a baby. And I realized Sleeping is great, especially when you have a baby, because when you sleep, you're actually more patient person. When you're asleep, you don't like, you don't lose your, your patience. You don't lose your temper as easily when you sleep. And so I started valuing sleep. So in that, I do a lot of work into actually like making sure as much as possible that like I do get sleep. So for instance, I used to work late. Now I don't work past seven because the thing that keeps me up at night is not being able to turn my mind off. It's just thinking about problems over and over. How do I get to that solution? How do I get, how do I, like, how do I solve that? How do I deal with that? How do I like resolve that? How do I make that thing the best it could possibly be? And so turning my brain off is the hardest part for me because I, because I just, it just keeps going. So I stop work at seven, right? That has been helpful. I drink single malt scotch. Wow. <laughs> Glass of scotch definitely helps. I also, not every night, obviously, but every yeah, once in a while. while. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, Callan 12, in case you're, in case you're asking. Okay. Uh, also, like I found that um, I listen to Terry Gross and Fresh Air. Okay. Fresh Air on NPR, Terry Gross. I find her voice soothing. Yes. I find conversations interesting they really like capture my brain in a way that lets it turn off its active part and really just focus on what terry has to say so listening to terry at night helps by the way i want to be terry gross when i grow up i think she's the coolest person and so i also find comfort in in her and in her interviews and and what she does so what keeps me up at night is just like trying to make things the best they can possibly be striving after perfection trying to solve all sorts of problems but but I know that I need to sleep now and I have a couple of little things that 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 help with that good that's that's good I will say as a as a note um one uh McCollin's great brand uh so I have a couple friends that drink it and uh they they they're like to die for um and (laughs) Terry Gross um for a industry conference I got to hear her speak and and you know I'll be honest I wasn't necessarily 
too familiar with her her, her work and, and kind of her as an interview, but she is an amazing conversationalist, and I, I hope I can I can be as good as that one day as well. So so I I, I completely understand. Yeah, I'm so jealous you got to saw, see her speak. I saw her yeah. once. I saw her record the live, which do the live recording of her 30th anniversary show, oh, and that was wow. amazing. But I didn't actually like get to see her speak about her experience or her professional career. But yeah, she's I, I just she enables me to turn off everything else in my brain and really just focus on the conversation she's having. And I'm so thankful for that. Yeah, no, she, a great voice and, and just, you know, again, ask, asking the right questions in the right way at the right time. It's, it's an art. Yeah. <laughs> again, not like, unlike this show, but um, hopefully, you know, for those listening out there, they're, they're following along and, and, you know, hopefully I'm asking the right questions. Yes. Speak, speaking of uh, the last one I at least had, you know, really was because you, you talked about a lot of stuff in terms of, you know, career growth and, and trying to develop in your career. But for you personally, you know, you've you've had a very great career, a very amazing career in terms of you know what you've done. But what underneath all of that motivates you? You know, what what is it that helps you get up a bed in the morning? You know, I, I know you have your daughter, I know you have family. Uh, but is there anything like what is the one single thing that you're like, this is this is why I do it? I'd love to hear that from you. I have always found a tremendous amount of energy from helping people. And that really comes to my grandmother. My grandmother was my soulmate in life. Like she and I were two peas in a pod. She, she passed about 10 years ago. And my grandmother was the most intellectually, creatively generous person that I've ever met in my entire life. And so she had a generosity of time. She had a generosity of attention. She had a generosity of focus, right? When you were with her, she she would make sure that you knew that like she was there to help you, to support you, to care for you, to push you in a lot of cases, to really push you. And those things are things that like I want to try to emulate in the world. I want people to know that I'm going to push them and challenge them and hopefully help them in a way that gets them to a place that maybe they didn't think that they could be. My grandmother also wore crazy hats. And when she passed, um, hundreds of people came to her funeral because she just was involved with everything. And it, it, she, she's, she's Catholic and just involved in all these different things in the church. And everybody knew her as like the hat lady because like it was a signature, it was part of her personal brand. Um, but like the Bishop came, hundreds of people came because she had, she had touched so many lives and she had given so much of herself to her six kids, to her grandkids, right? To her community, to just trying to make the world a better place and trying to serve people and trying to like give everything that she could from herself. So trying to live the way that my grandmother lived is what gets me up in the morning. I, I'm speechless. I think um, that's so cool that, that you had, you know, you have someone in your life and, and in your family, really, that, you know, is, had served for such an inspiration for a number of years. Um, that's that. I would love to have seen seen those hats. Um, that probably was a sight to see. But but I'm glad you know that at least you had that time to experience that and, and really gain that knowledge, insight, and also just motivation and and, and whatnot. And I'm sure I'm sure she's proud of of the things you've done in the last ten years, the things you've done over your career. So so wow, that's 
one more quick thing. So my grandmother used to take us on crazy trips and adventures and like, she would be like, well, let's just go to the zoo. So we go to the zoo and on the way back, she's like, look at those boathouses. Don't they look interesting? Maybe we should go in them. And we're like, Graham, you can't just go in the boathouses on Boathouse Row. Like those are private clubs. You can't. And she's like, nah. So she would walk up and just like knock on the door and she'd be like, my grandkids are here. Can we like, will you give us a tour? Can we look around? And like, I swear to you, people would just be like, yes, I yes. <laughs> she would do this sort of thing over and over again. And every time we had one of these experiences, sometimes they went terribly wrong, by the way. Sometimes they went terribly wrong. She would look at us, the grandkids or the kids, and she would say, at least it was different. <laughs> and I learned from my grandmother at a very early age, the inherent value of different. And just the value in having a different conversation than one that you've had before, meeting somebody who's different than you, going to a place that like you've never been to before and like stretching yourself because different is what we strive for because the more that we experience different and the more that we welcome different into our lives, the more whole we will be as people, the more well-rounded we will be as people. And so now there's, there's, a, there's a, a phrase that we use in the company all the time, which is different is better than better. And that's the idea that comes from my grandmother that like different is more important than just being better. Uh, that's a gem. I, I like, I, I agree with you. I think part of what I'm doing here and what I hope to do is through having these conversations, to be honest, you know, for those that are listening, like the reason why we came, our paths have crossed is because you kind of just were like, Hey, I'm looking to network for random people in Philadelphia. Would you be interested? And I was like, sure, why not? And I think just being open to, to that different, like no one had approached me, has approached me with something like that. And especially at a time like this, I was like, why not? And I, I think, you know, I can definitely say that you truly embody that. And, and so I think that's something for, for people to take away. And, and so thank you for being different in, 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 in just being you as well. Well, and thank you for being open to this and to this interaction. And like, that's what's so great. Every time you meet somebody new or somebody different, you never know where it's going to go. Exactly. As long as you're both open to those possibilities. And look, here we are now having a really fun conversation that I'm like, it has to come to an end. Yes. Yep. Yep. And as you said, yeah, um, it's great conversation. I hope that people out there listening have taken something from it. I will respect your time and let you go, but thank you so much Cass for, for joining the show. I really appreciate everything you've shared with us today. Uh, and, and I hope that, you know, the next 10 to 20 to 30 years however long you keep going with slicing and everything that you're doing you know it is different and better than being better thank you so much and thank you for having me on it was really really fun and that's the show thank you for listening be sure to leave a review or rating on apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening stay tuned for our next episode featuring melissa t le founder of Strive With Me, a professional development and social impact publication. As always, remember to live, laugh, and learn.